You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Nicholas G. Evans. He's an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Uh, he conducts research on national security and emerging technologies. And his recent work is on assessing the risks and benefits of dual-use research and as it relates to bioethics, health law, et cetera. We're going to be talking about um, actually autonomous vehicles today for a start and some of the, uh, the good and the bad of what's coming. So uh, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Great to be here. Yeah, I figured, you know, we'd start off with the autonomous vehicles. And, you know, before we get into it, I know the, the, the famous question that everyone talks about, I think is called the trolley problem, you know, where you have an autonomous vehicle and, you know, something happens and it's going to either run over, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, mothers and childs or it's going to uh, run over you know, 10 times as many uh, elderly people, let's say, and it has to make a decision. Do you think uh, that kind of thing is going to be a reality in self-driving cars? Or do you think that there may be uh, scenarios where the self-driving car actually has to hurt or kill the passenger in order to avoid hurting or killing a greater number of people? Right. So those are two really interesting questions. Uh, To start, the trolley problem was invented in the 1960s by a philosopher by the name of Philippa Foote, and she actually used it in the context of a number of things, but among other things, uh, abortion and the idea of saving the mother's life uh, versus saving uh, a child's life in certain types of cases of abortion. And so the problem goes, it didn't start out with mothers versus elderly people that that get mixed that gets mixed in later. But the idea is that with a runaway train or tram car, if you had the choice to pull a lever and change which track it was on, would you choose to allow it to run down a track on two five uh, rail workers or, or line workers who are on the line, or would you choose to pull a lever and change it to hit only one worker? And so the trolley problem has gotten more mileage than it probably should in the autonomous vehicles uh, discussion. But what it's really about is should you program or should you make a decision that intentionally causes someone to die, even if doing so would in fact uh, reduce the number of deaths that are involved. And certainly when we think about risk in autonomous vehicles, we are definitely going to have cases where cars might be able to be programmed to intentionally cause greater risk to certain kinds of people than others. And then the big question is, in the most extreme versions of that, when a car might have to be programmed or a car might have to make a decision to kill someone or to not kill someone, how ought the car react? So I think that that's definitely going to be a case at some point, but they're probably going to be fairly rare cases. 
Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, think about them very carefully, because just like uh, adverse events with medicines, even if they are rare, we still want to have some idea about how rare they are and what we should do when those one in a million chances come up. So this is still a, a strong ethical issue uh, that we need to think about. Now, one of the solutions, mm. of course, is to always save the driver. And that's the one that uh, people tend to confront most often. I believe there's one German uh, auto manufacturer. I forget if it's uh, Mercedes or Audi. They have already said that they will always save the driver uh, ahead of time. Actually, it might be Volvo, um, which if you believe the stereotypes, is a very Volvo thing to think. And that's already come under kind of some sort of concerns because you could imagine that there's a case where saving the driver could result in the death of five, 10, 50 other people. And so there's an open question about whether we should save the driver all the time or just most of the time. One thing to think about is what if you have a, a crazy driver that knows this and deliberately tries to kill people and then the car in such a way enables that person to, uh, you know, to kill people uh, in an easier way because it's protecting the, uh, the driver. Right. Uh, so what if uh, you allow your car to behave more recklessly knowing that it will always prioritize saving you? There's also the reverse problem, which is if your car is always programmed to stop the pedestrians no matter what, uh, pedestrians uh, and engineers actually worry about this actively. I was at a conference last year where someone brought this up. What happens if the car is programmed to always immediately stop uh, if a pedestrian is around and you start having people who play chicken with the cars? So they just run out on the highways just for the lull, as it would be said, and, um, and cause traffic jams or traffic uh, accidents because they run out onto city street as cars are moving at speed and cause them to rapidly decelerate or swerve uh, under their algorithms. So there are, there are a lot of what um, a colleague of mine would call adversarial uses of these cars. And that's where some of the ethics becomes particularly strange because we have to think about how we're going to program these vehicles, not just for normal car behaviors, but also for novel behaviors that we could have because they're robot cars effectively. So things that we wouldn't otherwise do with human-driven cars. Yeah, and I see the evolution, too, that, um, you know, let's say self-driving cars become more widespread. They see, let's say, that it uh, reduces accidents and deaths by 25%. Then right. I can see that lawmakers say, well, you're required to use uh, auto-driving mode, except in emergencies or certain cases, because there's less deaths, so you owe society that that burden to do that just like seatbelts you got to wear them you know like uh, you know should you have to wear them or should you not but i just see this as an extension of it and i see people even not not being allowed to drive at all unless again in emergencies in the future right so this is a a really interesting uh, kind of space to, to work in so uh, for your listeners uh knowledge i so i work in lawful which is a small town in massachusetts which is about 20 minutes away from the New Hampshire border. And to my knowledge, there is no law in New Hampshire that requires you to wear a seatbelt. Uh, so it's the only state left in the union where you don't have to wear a seatbelt. Obviously, car manufacturers continue to put them in because it's a good idea and they don't want to make cars specifically for New Hampshire. But you don't legally have to wear seatbelts or a motorcycle helmet in, in, in New Hampshire. So this is still an issue about the degree to which we should restrict people's liberty even when we think about seatbelts, 
it's still an active debate here in the United States. And so you can imagine how much more controversial it would be if we decided to, for example, take away people's ability or right to drive a car on the highway because we thought or because we knew that it was so much safer uh, to just let the car drive itself. Well, look what's happening with seatbelt chimes. You know, you can't turn them off and the mechanics won't disable them for you because I've asked because it's, oh, it's against the law or void the warranty. I don't know, yep. whatever it is. But now I got a seatbelt chime and it annoys the shit out of me and I got to wear the seatbelt. You know, I know I don't want this. Like who decided this? You know, so I can see that happening right. pretty easily. So that's like a really interesting way to nudge people, right? Without necessarily um, restricting their liberty. I mean, you can uh, drive your your car with the seatbelt uh, sign on and the alarm blaring and whatever. As far as I know, cars don't yet turn off their engines if you aren't wearing your seatbelt, though there may be a car that does that. Um, my It happens all the time in the parking garage near my apartment. My wife will take off her seatbelt you know, early because we're already in the parking garage and, you know, I'm just trying to cruise around to find a spot. And immediately my car will start yelling at me because she's not wearing a seatbelt. Um, and I'll often kind of tell her to put her seatbelt back on just because the sound is irritating to me. Um, and so you could imagine driving on a highway and not turning on your autopilot and your car doesn't stop you from driving yourself, but it will kind of blink or it will make noises at you or constantly remind you or, interrupt your music or your podcast or whatever you're listening to, to kind of gently nudge you to turn on that autopilot. And you end up doing it just because it's it's better to have the autopilot on than being nagged by your car. Yeah. And again, slippery slope. You're right. <clears throat> At some point soon, I'm sure it'll interlock the ignition and who knows what. And I see the same thing happening with self-driving cars. And, you know, I mean, just like uh, red light cameras, speed cameras, that kind of thing. It seems to be that you know, no one's really taking the time or effort or who has the time or effort to fight these things if you don't like them. And so they become instituted. So I don't see it as being too difficult a hurdle for that to happen. So, I mean, this comes from being a, a foreigner in part, so I'm Australian, uh, but I'm going to push back on this idea of a slippery slope. I think that, you know, to, to have a slippery slope, one of the things you need is the slope needs to kind of be downwards at all points in order for you to slide to the bottom. And I think that in the United States, we definitely see that there are local minimums and maximums along that road. Uh, so uh, in Australia, for example, to my knowledge, most, if not all, um, uh, intersections with a traffic light, uh, the, the traffic signal uh, has a, a speed camera that activates when the light turns yellow. Um, and mm. so uh, the... The classic behavior, at least here in New England, is that if you see a yellow light ahead, what do you do? You speed up to get through it, right? Um, if you do that in, the United, in, in Australia, you often, and you know, I say this from personal experience, you can often end up with a $60 to $150 fine for just trying to get through that yellow, that yellow light just a little bit quicker than you're probably legally allowed to do. Um, so there's right. a, I mean, I think that there's, there's a long way to go. Um, and... Uh, our institutions are fairly well designed to uh, to have a lot of inertia towards these changes. Um, even actually, the fight for uh, for seatbelts. If you look at um, if you go to say the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, um, you can kind of see the history there about how hard it was to get states to accept seatbelt laws. I mean, it was an absolute nightmare uh, for a couple of years. Um, so, but on the other hand, uh, we know that seatbelts save lives. Uh, and we do have to ask the question really seriously, um, is the liberty we give up? And, you know, 
I'm not going to lie, it is a liberty that we give up uh, if we make wearing a seatbelt a, a legal requirement. Is giving up that liberty really as bad as it sounds, given how how bad the consequences are if you aren't wearing a seatbelt? Um, and maybe that's something that we can all rationally buy into. And even if there's a few people who don't, maybe maybe that's the price of doing business, especially if we live in a country where, um, for example, lots of people don't pay their medical bills. Uh, and so you might be on the hook for someone else's medical bills through your insurance premiums because they don't wear a seatbelt. So those externalities might be something that we all have an interest in buying into and making sure that people pay their fair share, even if paying means wearing a seatbelt or having a robot car. Yeah. Um, I mean, like in Australia, you said there's speed cameras on every light. Did you vote on that? Did you know it was happening? Or all of a sudden you just started hearing, oh, they're starting to put speed cameras in on these lights and that was it. No one was asked. It just happened. I mean, so it was actually, there's a little bit of both. I mean, so people obviously complain about it in Australia, but um, whereas the United States has had a war on drugs uh, for a long time, uh, Australia has had a war on road fatalities for the better part of 40 years now. Um, it has been a, a huge policy priority for the Australian government. People actually vote for their candidates based on the idea that they're going to make the roads safer, um, especially at the state level. Um, and so although people didn't vote for those individual policies, they do, as a, as kind of a general trend, tend to vote for candidates who are going to improve the quality of the roads and who are going to improve uh, safety on the roads. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Australia's road death, uh, as a function of population, of course, uh, the rate is, I believe, between a half and a third of that of the United States, um, because it was something that was turned into a political issue and people voted on it um, as something they really, really wanted. Mm, gotcha. And going back to um, self-driving cars, yeah, we started talking about this before the call, but <clears throat> I told you I imagined a scenario, and you said it's actually happened, you know, someone's driving down the road, let's say maybe, you know, a wealthy business person, the doors lock and remotely someone's controlling the car and they inform the person either by text message, cell phone, whatever it is, or the car itself. You know, you've been uh, kidnapped. If you don't wire a million dollars to this account in the next 20 minutes, we're going to drive you off the road and kill you. You know, do you see that happening? You know, maybe talk about that, how cars can be hijacked if, uh, especially as more and more electronics get into them and they become more autonomous. Yeah. Um, so as of, I believe, about 2015, this started to become an issue. Uh, one of the reasons is that even before your car has a driving algorithm, most of the systems in your car are no longer mechanical. Uh, they're electronic. And that can go everything from the way that fuel is injected into the engine uh, all the way through to your radio and your steering console. All of that is either electronic or electronically assisted. And one of the interesting things about the way that cars are manufactured is that often all of those electrics are passed through one central uh, node. And the reason that that's done is that that makes it easier for dealerships and mechanics to do rapid diagnostics on your car when it comes into the shop, right? So they've got one point that they can enter into the, into the car's electrics to figure out what's going on with all of the different pieces of the car. But those are unsecured uh, diagnostic ports. And so you can, and often actually these days, they're not even diagnostic ports. They also have Bluetooth receivers in them. So if those Bluetooth receivers are unsecured, then you can, in principle, hack someone's car already. 
uh, there was a great article in Wired magazine about someone having their uh, their Jeep uh, hacked on the highway. Um, this was on purpose. They were doing it as part of a test. No one actually did this uh, actively adversarially. Uh, and then in 2015, people also started to talk about um, ransomware for cars. So you could upload uh, something into a, a car that will disable the car, um, including potentially while someone is in the car. And then you could charge either them or if you do it to enough cars, you could charge the manufacturer uh, some very, very large amount of money to get rid of it. Right. So you could do ransomware on individuals, say particularly rich individuals, but you could also do ransomware on entire like manufacturing brands. So you could hold uh, yeah, Ford or GM to ransom for however much money you want by locking all of the GM cards or locking one system in all of the GM cards and then charging GM some large amount of cash uh, to, to have that system fixed. That's horrible. Imagine, you know, in uh, Arizona in the middle of the summer, you do that. Turn off people's cars, lock yeah. them in, you kill God knows how many people. Or, you know, on a highway, what if you take control of 30, 40 cars or in different spots? I mean, you could kill all kinds of, you can cause unbelievable damage and destruction by doing something like that. Yeah, I mean, or even if you didn't want to kill someone, you just wanted to make a bunch of cash by making everyone really angry. Like, imagine in Arizona, instead of locking every, like locking out everyone's cars, you just lock out everyone's air conditioning, right? So you can still drive the car around, you can still <laughs> yeah. roll down the windows, but you've got no air conditioning. I mean, that's going right. to kill a car manufacturer. I mean, like you could send a car manufacturer out of business if you did that. So, I mean, there's, I think people worry about adversarial examples a lot in terms of simply human kind of life. But just like in cybercrime, you can often find trends in the way that hacking uh, emerges if you look at the economic incentives as much as the human life incentives. But there's definitely some some death and destruction on the way for us um, unless we secure our cars a little better. Hmm. Uh, do you think that manufacturers are going to be addressing this? I mean, they say, yeah, 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 the car won't be hackable, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, how do, how do they balance the uh, the additional technology with the responsibility to make sure, like, these bad things don't happen? So over the last couple of years, um, we started to see uh, recalls for vehicles on cybersecurity uh, matters. So I believe that um, there was uh, the first and only cybersecurity-related recall happened in 2015 and resulted in 1.4 million cars being uh, uh, recalled uh, for fixing. I believe it was on, actually on one of the parking assist modes. Right. So, you know, this is this thing that some new cars have where you can press a button and the car parks itself for you. Um, it's my belief, although uh, I'm not totally clear on exactly what the recall was, um, that uh, that that was one of like the big thing that happened, uh, that the recall occurred uh, because hmm. the driver assist was vulnerable to a hat to hacking. Hey, it's crazy. So the future TMS so what other already... Yeah, I mean, I also thought, too, like, you know, I, I was walking behind uh, the, the rear camera in my car, you know, when I back up, it comes on. It wasn't looking so good. So I went back there and I cleaned it, you know, and I'm like, wow, it looks yeah. great now. And then, I, you know, I was in a parking lot when I did this and I looked at other cars and I said, wait a minute, you know, and I walked, you know, I don't know, 10 feet or 20 feet. And I looked at a bunch of cars and most of them have like a camera rear facing. And then mm -hmm. I thought, hmm, I wonder how long before cars have front rear and side-facing cameras, and, you know, cars essentially are 
surveillance objects, not just for the people inside them, but for everything they see. You know, they could say, uh, you know, the government could say, oh, well, in order to make sure the safety of roads and, you know, uh, know what happened in traffic accidents, you know, mandatory cameras are now in every car and they're going to be on all the time as you drive and they're going to surveil everything. I mean, you know, what, what are your thoughts surrounding that? Do you see that happening? I mean, to a certain extent, again, the future's already here. It's just, uh, I believe, as William Gibbs says, not very well distributed yet. So one of the interesting things is that, yeah, you know, we're absolutely going to have uh, issues related to uh, sensors put on cars, either for human drivers or for autonomous uh, vehicles that, in principle, could be used as surveillance devices. Right. So you're going to need optical cameras for some devices, but you're also going to need radar and LIDAR. And then the algorithms themselves that run these autonomous cars use that sensor data to construct pictures or representations of the world around them. Uh, and in principle, you could uh, stream that data into a central location and use it as a surveillance mechanism against people. But one of the things that allows us that is already an incredibly sophisticated and pervasive, a pervasive surveillance device uh, are our phones. Uh, and if you're someone who uses uh, an app like Waze, right, which is owned by Google, Waze operates frequently when you aren't using the app. And so it's still tracking you, even though you don't have the app open. So mm. not only can your phone track your car, and because it can measure the speed at which you're moving, right, no one walks to the bus at 60 miles an hour, right? You're clearly driving um, if, you're, yeah. uh, if you're on that. And then if you're on public transit, uh, Waze can also figure out if you're on public transit because uh, you'll be going in very particular predetermined routes. And so it can cross-check against mm. routes. Uh, Waze can now know whether you're at home, whether you're on your way to work, how you're getting to work. Uh, and it can do so even if you aren't actually using the app. Uh, so in principle, if someone wanted to track every every human being um, on uh, in uh, in America, um, they could at least get to every ways utilizing human being in America, um, which I'm sure is a good number of million people. Yeah, I've noticed that too with Google. Um, <clears throat> I've been to places like you know Joe's Sandwich Shop, and I didn't have location services on. I deliberately turned it off and said, "Oh, how is Joe's Sandwich Shop? What the hell? You know, I never." told you you could look at me going there so I, I shouldn't just say government i should also say you know companies but it's uh right you know i don't know yeah, it's just I'll get uh, facebook it's, ads. it's not a nice thing yeah no i'll get facebook ads for uh brick and mortar shops that i've gone into even if i haven't actually looked at the website of that brick and mortar shop right so wow uh these companies are very very sophisticated um for them at the moment it's all about money and about maximizing uh, your profitability in terms of the ads that they provide to you. But it's kind of no secret that we live in a surveillance society already. It's just that our surveillance society is privately owned. And I'm sure for some people that makes them feel more comfortable than the government being the one who has all this data directly. Mm. Uh, but for others, including myself, um, it's kind of a cold comfort that a company like Google has access to all of my information rather than the United States government. Um, I mean, both can be oppressive. It's just that one's clearly out to make a buck off me. The other one's not explicitly out to make a buck off me. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's cold comfort. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in the world of cars, what other, uh, 
you know, futuristic dystopian nightmares have you envisioned that I haven't thought of or, or good things? Right. So I think that there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad. I think that a lot of the conversations about good or bad frequently miss how fast and to whom these things roll out. Um, so, so here's my, here's the dystopian uh, nightmare that I've been thinking about for the last uh, six months. Um, as I said earlier, I was at a conference uh, in San Francisco, the Autonomous Vehicles Symposium, uh, in yeah. June uh, of 2018, and I heard an engineer uh, who was frustrated with this problem of um, chicken, right? So as I described, uh, you can play chicken with autonomous cars, you can jump out in front of them and they'll stop on a dime, uh, mm. and you can keep them stopped as long as you're sitting in front of them, right? You can kind of stop them from getting around you. And so an engineer who was frustrated with this problem uh, suggested, um, and I'm not kidding, that we simply build a wall around all the roads that autonomous vehicles are going to use and completely restrict them from being used uh, as pedestrians. Um, now, that sounds like a really kind of, uh, it's a very engineering way to look at it, right? It's like, oh, well, we've got this problem. Right. We could try and reprogram the car or we could just build a wall. Um, but one of the things that I noticed is that this is actually a very similar conversation to the conversation we should have had when the interstate was being constructed. Um, so mm. there are, there's lots of data now that suggests that one of the, the, the big problems with the interstate project was that when governments were deciding where the interstate was going to be built, the neighborhoods they choose to build it through were predominantly African-American, were predominantly poor, and they separated people from central services, from central business districts, from their schools, from their grocery stores, uh, in building oh, that was that was uh, and I guess zoning could reinforce that very easily and, and subtly. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, redlining didn't didn't do any favors for this process, right? In the pro in hmm. in the way that this kind of went down, and so you could imagine, right, that you know cities decide that they're just going to wall off whole sections of the city to pedestrians because they want to prioritize autonomous vehicles and. Right. One of the questions that I like to ask is maybe maybe chicken isn't actually a, a bug. Maybe it's a feature, right? So maybe we could imagine because autonomous vehicles are able to moderate their speed fairly uh, rationally in a way that humans don't, right? Humans like to get as fast as they can, as often as they can, which is actually not the best way to drive. The best way to drive is to drive at a lower speed that you can maintain consistently. Maybe the best thing to do is to allow this chicken problem to occur and actually reclaim city streets for pedestrians, bearing in mind that jaywalking wasn't a crime until until cars came on the, on the scene, right? Um, you know, mm. people kind of mm. walked around on the streets a lot, a lot differently than we do now. Um, and it was actually car manufacturers and pro-car cities uh, that put in jaywalking ordinances uh, to try and, you know, criminalize the act of walking where you shouldn't be walking. Well, one of the ways to solve the chicken problem is you have the cars on, I mean, sorry, the cameras on cars, which I just said I didn't like, but now they can help right. me because if someone jumps in front of my car and does that, the cameras are recording them, they can get ticketed for doing right. something like that. So, mm -hmm. all right, maybe it's not so bad. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, maybe it's not so bad or maybe, you know, we redesign uh, our cities to make it that, you know, central business districts, as a lot of cities these days are doing, um, are less accessible by car and are more designed mm. for walking. You know, cities all over are putting in more open air malls for people to walk through, you know, historic districts 
Um, there's less room for cars, but the way that you solve that problem is you make better public transit, and then your autonomous vehicle helps you solve the last mile problem by getting you to the transit hub um, and then going mm-hmm. home, right? Because it, because it's autonomous vehicle, it doesn't need to hang out and park for you. It can just come pick you up when you get off the train again. And true. instead, we, we redesign our cities uh, for human beings rather than try to design them to, to fit what the autonomous cars want. So oh, that, to me, that's, that's a good, big that's, question that's about utopia. Yeah. That's why you're a philosopher, because you can see many that's sides why. of the issue, not just one, you know? Yeah, that's why they pay me the big bucks. Well, like, you know, I'm in uh, Austin, Texas, and here they have these, uh, you know, these scooters, you know, you put a dollar in and you could ride the scooter, you know, and they're like, they're like cockroaches. They're all over the road, they're all over the place, laying around. It's just, and the people that drive them, they don't care. They're just all over the road, causing problems and on sidewalks and everything. So you think, yeah. oh, this might be a great thing, but they're a real nuisance, you know? It's like a swarm of flies all over the place. So I guess it's, it's, you know, it's not just cars, but there's a lot to think about, as you're saying, when you uh, think about how you want things to be and how you want people to be influenced and to experience their environments and balance convenience and safety and, you know, public good and all these things. So it's very complex. It is. And, you know, um, so I have uh, friends who work in the hospital system um, in the D.C. area uh, in Washington, and um, they often tell me that, you know, uh, it's not who you think who ends up in the emergency room at 3 a.m. anymore. Um, the uh, the people who end up in the emergency room in Washington, D.C. these days, you know, are frequently like, you know, public servants who have had a few too many drinks and tried to get on a uh, on, on an electric scooter um, after having a couple of drinks. Hmm and then kind of crash it off the curb and, you know, dings ahead. But you could imagine a world in which, you know, so you're in Austin, Texas, you can imagine a, a world that maybe it's not a, a super possible world, but it is a world in which the city goes, you know what, we're going to pick one street that goes, you know, that is kind of not super arterial, but at least gets you most places. And we're going to take a lane from that street and make it a scooter only lane. Right, and we're going to divert all the scooter mm. traffic up this one street by by making this the safe spot for you to ride a scooter as fast as you want down down this particular road. Um, right. And that's kind of a way that a that a city can work with new transport modalities, whether it's you know super little nifty scooters or autonomous vehicles or bicycles, um, and just make the city easier for everyone by making sure that you've got the right transport modalities on the right streets, um, doing things in certain ways that allow them to do it safely rather than trying to prevent them or trying to deal with the fallout of these super mixed environments where you've got pedestrians, bikes, scooters, and cars all trying to kind of jostle for exactly the same spot of real estate. Right, that's true. Yeah, I just thought about, um, you know, they want to put in light rail and it's ungodly expensive and you know, maybe they could put in an autonomous car rail, you know, where like right. this, uh, this this set of road is only for autonomous vehicles and people take them like they would light rail and they come along every so often and pick people up and drop them off. And then you could use existing infrastructure and not have to spend billions on this stuff that doesn't really uh, seem to work too well. Yeah. You know, um, one of the things about public transport is that there's so many different ways you can build it and each city is different. Right. There are cities in this country that you wouldn't want to build a rail line in because they're either on a fault line or they're too hilly. And, you know, rail, you know, there's only so so steep it can get before rails don't work. Um, 
but maybe in a city like Austin, maybe what you want to do is figure out the cheapest, fastest, most environmentally friendly way to get people where they need to go. Um, and then kind of sit down with the community and figure out what the community actually wants um, in terms of getting around. Um, I know that Texans like their cars. Um, and, you know, maybe it's just the case that Texas is like, you know what, we like driving for driving's sake. We like owning big cars. That's our thing. And maybe that's okay, right? Maybe maybe Texas can can say, look, we'd rather deal with the inconvenience of big cars because that's, that's what it is to be Texan. Um, and other states can go, you know what, big cars don't do it for us. Um, mm. So we're going to do something else. So what, um, you know, you said the futures here, it's just unevenly distributed, which I know is a quote. I, yeah. I forget from who maybe, but, um, you know, you should have, I, I would guess you have a lot of insight into what's going to happen specifically with driving and with autonomous vehicles. So what do you see as the future in the next five years versus uh, 20 years? You know, what do you think is likely to happen? So one of the interesting dynamics for me is that the the average age of a car is going up pretty fast. I mean, cars are not immortal yet, but they're pretty close to immortal in the sense that I think I think the latest statistic I've seen is that the average age of a car in the United States goes up something like six to nine months every year. So people basically just aren't buying new cars as fast as they used to. And that's not because of, it's not necessarily because of the financial crash or anything like that. It's because your car just doesn't break as fast as it used to, right? So I'm driving a car from 2007. Um, and according to my mechanic, I'll probably be still driving that car for another five to 10 years unless something really, really bad happens. Um, you know, like there's like a hellish winter that like, you know, totally strips out the undercarriage of my car faster than I can keep it clean or I'm in a car crash or something like that. So one of the interesting things about autonomous vehicles is that most of those sensor packages are going into new cars and not into old cars. And so Mm. what I see happening next, the next big innovation is trying to build a third-party software and sensor stack that a person could buy at an auto shop and add to their car. We're already seeing this, um, so like uh, um, uh, tailgate mirrors, you can already like get, sorry, tailgate uh, cameras, right? You can already get cameras right. in the rear of your car, third party. Um, and you can fairly easily add them to either like, like just near where like your boot latch is or just, um, or like near where one of your indicator lights is and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I think that one of the next big innovations that's going to be driven by the fact that people just aren't buying new cars very fast is someone trying to work out how we can create the third-party autonomous vehicle set, right? So the people who want it don't have to replace their old car and can instead go out and get a stack that they can then uh, add to their own car. That's not an easy technical mm. feat because some of these sensors are super, super expensive and super, super complicated. But right. that's the way the technology goes, right? Is you make it modular, you make it portable. So, so I you're saying like uh, yeah, aftermarket retrofitting to make cars, uh, you know, safer and with assisted driving, I guess you can call it, but not necessarily yep. autonomous yet. Right. Um, so there's a car in that, uh, what is it? It's Volvo. I think it's the Volvo CX90. Um, it's been called the safest car in the world. Um, there are 50,000 of them in the United Kingdom. And I believe over the last five to six years, they have not been involved in a single fatal crash, um, <laughs> which is unheard of um, in, in the auto industry. 
And what they're putting it down to is that one of the innovations they have in the CX-90 is that um, there's a uh, there's a rear-facing camera, and that rear-facing camera, it does the, the normal alerts when there's an object behind you. But if you choose to disregard those alerts, or if you aren't paying attention, it cuts out the engine um, and locks up the wheels. Um, and so basically, uh, one of the biggest kind of causes of crashes um, or fatal uh, accidents in, the, in, in anywhere is people yeah. backing up and not knowing where they're going or not being able to pay attention to what's behind them. And so mm. they they took away that option from you in the CX-90. Um, and as a result, you know, people backing out of their driveways, it's just impossible for them to run over a kid or back into a car that's moving down the highway because the sensors now go out to the side of the car and not just straight behind. Um, and so that car will will stop you from, from hurting yourself um, in that one limited scenario. And that's made a huge amount of difference. So you could imagine if you could package that into a third-party aftermarket Set that was reasonably affordable um, mm. and widely distributed that to existing cars, you would take a huge bite out of um, a lot of the a lot of the car crashes that we have. Yeah, I've uh, you know parked in a garage and you know hit into the pole in the garage and dented my car. I've you know, thank God I've never run over someone, but you know I've driven yeah. out of a driveway that was steep and the car goes and stops you because it thinks you're going to crash, but I mean, you know, the car I have, there's front cameras, there's a rear camera, and it helps. You know, there's a balance between annoying you to death and helping you, but it does help. You know, I I do credit it with helping me several times. Yeah, every time I travel for work, um, I, and I have to rent a car for what I'm, you know, to get where I'm going, I'm always surprised that the cars that I'm driving, that, you know, rental fleets usually operate cars that are like between, you know, totally new to one to two years old. And those cars have a whole bunch of little bells and whistles that I actually find super helpful. So I think that the next big innovation is widely distributed assisted driving. Um, Because it's not totally clear that the actual robots themselves are actually going to make like the 99% of difference on road safety. They might be like the last 10%. But I Hmm. think personally that we can probably get away with a lot of the extra safety without going full robot. And there was a story actually in Axios this morning about how uh, our our president, President Trump, does not like the idea of autonomous cars at all. He doesn't trust robots. Mm. Um, and that's true, actually, for about 70% of uh, American drivers um, who are interviewed say that they wouldn't trust a robot to drive them just yet. Um, and so right. I think we're going to see like uh, kind of getting your foot in the door through assisted driving yeah. and increasingly assisted driving, lane assist, parking assist, things like that. Um, and that'll be the next 10 to 20 years. And then I would imagine that after that 20-year mark, that's when we're going to start to see the penetration of fully autonomous vehicles onto the road in significant numbers. It makes sense, yeah. If you have um, more and more safety features and more and more assistance, then anyone can drive better and better and better, and that may reduce the need for fully autonomous vehicles. Right. Um, Boy, talking to you, you makes know, me feel it. better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's not all bad news. It's not all bad news. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, um, very good. What's, so what's the best way for folks to find out more about, um, you know, what you're working on? I know we didn't cover other parts of it, such as disease, um, but, you know, what's a good way for, again, folks to maybe reach out to, for collaboration or to get in touch somehow or to ask questions or learn more? Uh, yeah. So you can uh, email me. My uh, my work email is nicholas underscore evans, E-V-A-N-S, at U-M-L dot E-D-U. 
you can find me on uh, the Twitter. Um, my my handle is at neva nine two five seven, and I do have a website which is uh, nicholasgevans uh, dot com. Excellent. Well, Nick, thanks for coming and taking the time and um, you know helping to uh, give rationality to my crazy ideas about what could happen. Anytime, man. Happy to be on. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.